Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com slash Goals24. That's Chime.com slash Goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash Disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. Some of you were probably a bit disappointed that I didn't do a podcast yesterday. After all, you might have been expecting it since we had such a big down day in the stock market. The Dow closed down 464 points. But, you know, I can't do a podcast every time the Dow is down 400 points. I'll be doing podcasts every day. And I do have other things that I have to do, so I don't have the time. But... Uh, I am doing one today. The Dow was not down quite as much today. It was only down, I think, what, 414 points. But it was a big down day. In fact, there was even more carnage in the NASDAQ. I think the NASDAQ was down more today uh, than it was yesterday. In fact, today is the day that the NASDAQ finally slipped into bear market territory. So Wall Street's been calling this a correction the whole way. Well, now the NASDAQ is down 22%. This joins the Russell 2000 down 26% and the transports down 24%. Those three indexes are now officially in bear markets. But what does that mean? That means when the NASDAQ was only down 5%, it was in a bear market. That's exactly what I was saying. It's just they don't acknowledge the bear market until it's down 20%. But that doesn't mean it's not in a bear market. It just means nobody wants to admit that it's a bear market. Now, we still have two indexes that are not in bear markets. The S&P 500 is now down almost 18%. 
and the Dow Jones is down just under 17%. So Wall Street maybe can cling to the notion that these indexes are not in bear markets either because they're not down 20%. Well, look, it's all a matter of time. As I said on the last podcast, I thought the NASDAQ would be in a bear market by the end of the week, and that's exactly what happened. And I'm pretty sure that the S&P and the Dow are going to join this party, if you can call it a party, uh, before the end of the year. Uh, which there's not that many trading days left. In fact, we still have two more Mondays left of the year. Now, Monday after this weekend is Christmas Eve day. So that's actually a shortened day. The market closes at, I think, 1 o'clock instead of 4 o'clock Eastern time. So not as much time for a Black Monday on Christmas Eve, although we still could have a pretty big drop, even if we only have half the amount of time. But I do believe that the final trading Monday of the year is a full day, New Year's Eve day. So maybe that would be the last time that we could have a Black Monday. But even if we don't get a Black Monday, it is a black and blue December. Again, this is the second worst December in the history of the stock market. I think we only have a couple of percentage points to take out the worst December, which was back in the Depression in 1931. And, you know, we could easily take that out and we could be the worst uh, December in history because we still have several more days in order to beat out the 1931 decline. In fact, I was looking at some data on fourth quarters and I looked at it yesterday. So maybe we, you know, we even improved or depending on the way you want to look at it, uh, went the other way in uh, worst fourth quarters in S&P history. But as of yesterday, when I checked, this was the seventh worst fourth quarter in the history of the S&P. Of the six fourth quarters that were worse than this one, four of them uh, happened during the Great Depression. You know, so, I mean, that's pretty bad, right? Something's happening now that you have to go back to the Great Depression, right, to see things that bad. One of the other ones was the fourth quarter of 1987, and that quarter had the 87 stock market crash where the Dow was down 22% in one day. So that was the other quarter that was worse than this one. And then the other one was the fourth quarter of 2008, which was the worst quarter of the 2008 financial crisis. So what's happening right now is not without precedent, but it only happens when times are really bad. So to think that it's happening this time and it's different, that we're having this really big thing. Now, yes, in 1987, the stock market crashed and we did not have a recession. Thanks to Alan Greenspan, uh, that's when he started his precedent of coming to the aid of the market with cheap money. And of course, that's what set us on this doomed path. Uh, but if you look at all the other times that we had this week quarters, it was in the Great Recession or the Great Depression. And so there's a good chance that there is some really bad economic times right around the corner that people are oblivious to. Now, you know, today's decline, we started off as a rally. In fact, the Dow was up better than 400 points this morning or about 400 points before it collapsed. And so we basically reversed yesterday's decline and then we got clobbered and took out new lows. In fact, you know, the, the NASDAQ was down 3%. That was the weakest uh, index. And it was led down by the FANG stocks, which are now down collectively on average 35%. The FANG, and this is just generally in the last few months. And so this is a huge bear market in the FANG stocks. 
And the worst of the fangs is Facebook, which was down big again today, what, like 5% or something like that, 6%. Facebook is now down 43%. Bringing up uh, second place, quick, you know, right on Facebook's tail is Netflix. Netflix is at 42% decline. Then uh, Amazon is down 33%. Bring it up the rear, or I guess in the front, <laughs> is Google. Google's only down 23%. In fact, Google finally went into a bear market this week, the last couple of days. If it was Maybe it was yesterday that Google slipped into the bear market. But it was the only FANG stock that technically wasn't in one, and now they're all in one. But if you look at the charts, there is nothing but air. I mean, there is a long way down between where we are now and where any kind of trend lines or support lines could be drawn. But the reason for the rally this morning was some optimism that was created by New York Fed President John Williams, who was on CNBC in the morning, and he was there to do some damage control. But obviously, it did not work. He was there to walk back some of the not quite dovish enough statements about interest rates, the two hikes next year, and quantitative tightening being on autopilot. And basically, what Williams said is, first he said, well, yes, of course, the rate hikes are not guaranteed. I mean, we didn't say we're going to do it for sure, right? It all depends on the data. But that wasn't really anything new. I mean, the Fed never came out and said, there's going to be two rate hikes for sure. They just thought there would be two rate hikes. And their thinking is based on their forecast. Since they believe the economy is going to keep growing, well, they believe that they're going to hike rates two more times. So that didn't really do it. But as uh, Williams was talking, the whole rally took place when Williams was talking. In fact, the Dow was down before he started the interview. So the whole rally happened while he was talking. And as soon as he stopped talking, that's when the decline began. The other point that he made or the issue that he addressed and tried to backpedal was on quantitative tightening. And there he said, well, yes, of course, if things really change, well, we're willing to consider changes to our shrinking of our balance sheet. But as of now, we have no plans to do that because we think everything is great. So what... Um, Williams did was he did put quantitative easing back on the table by saying that, okay, we're not going to continue to shrink our balance sheet no matter what. Clearly, I mean, if we have a recession or something, then we can change course. But as long as everything continues on the path that we expect, then we are not going to be uh, changing or making any changes to this automatic rundown of our balance sheet. And then that was it. But you know what? That's not what this market needs. See, nobody seems to understand that this rally was all about quantitative easing and 0% interest rates, at least until Trump was elected. I mean, once Trump was elected, then we had another blow off top where on top of the bubble that we had from quantitative easing and cheap money, we had this hysteria about tax cuts and making America great again. And we had this huge blow-off rally uh, that was not the result of the cheap money, but it kind of punctuated the bubble that was created by the cheap money. And so, but now, right, the air is coming out of that bubble. 
And so what the Fed just doesn't get, I mean, there's a lot of things they don't get. But one thing they don't get about the market is the market is going to keep falling until they cut rates again and until they do quantitative easing. You know, it's like if there's a drug addict and now they're not getting their drugs, they're they're going through withdrawal. And in fact, it's not that the the Fed isn't giving the market drugs. It's actually taking the drugs away. It's sucking the drugs right out of their body with uh, with quantitative tightening. So the market's going to keep falling. If the Fed is telling the markets, we're not going to change monetary policy until there's a recession, well, then the stock market's going to fall until there's a recession. Because until the Fed rescues the market, the market ain't going to stop falling because there's nothing beneath the market. There was never anything real holding it up. But another thing the Fed doesn't get is the degree to which the economy is going to follow the stock market. And it's amazing that they can't figure this out because, again, they specifically created a wealth effect to engender economic growth or spending, which they believe is economic growth. And so if you build a recovery on asset prices and cheap money, then when the asset prices go down, the recovery goes with it, right? It's it's consumer spending, right? The reason that um, the Fed wanted asset prices to go up was so people would feel wealthier. And because they would feel wealthier, they would spend more. And higher asset prices also act as collateral for loans. So it allows people to borrow more and then spend that money. So all that spending is a function of asset-based wealth, not real wealth, not real production, right? And productivity increases. No, this was a bubble. This wasn't genuine economic growth. So now we're taking away all of that wealth. So now you have the reverse wealth effect. We still have all the extra debt that consumers are loaded up with, but they don't have the left the, the extra assets to balance off that debt. And so now we have the defaults and the bankruptcies and the spending stops. It's only a matter of time. Yet the Fed is oblivious, but they were oblivious to this during the last bubble when the Fed refused to acknowledge how important asset prices were to the economy. When Janet Yellen said that the housing market was a tiny part of the economy and it didn't matter if housing prices went down. Yellen didn't realize how much high home prices were influencing the rest of the economy, which was based on and consumption. And so the same thing is happening today. You have a consumer who is spending based on the perception of wealth, the lack of need to save because the stock market and your house was doing it for you, and how cheap the debt was. All of that is changing, and the Fed doesn't recognize that, or at least it won't admit that. So it is going to withhold the drugs that the market desperately needs until there's a recession. So the bear market is going to continue until the Fed is going to admit that the market is in a recession. But what... The bigger picture, what nobody wants to acknowledge is the underlying mistakes that we made in 2008 when we made this deal with the devil in the first place, right? The deal that we made with the devil was we're going to slash interest rates to zero. We're going to do all this quantitative easing to delay the day of reckoning. We don't want to have to deal with the underlying structural problems because that's too painful. So let's inflate a bigger bubble so we can have some more phony prosperity and so we don't have to deal with the problems. But now, right, the devil is here to collect on that deal. And people don't realize that we're going to be in economic hell 
Now, one of the primary beneficiaries of the deal with the devil was Barack Obama because he got to be in office while we had all this phony prosperity. But the problem was the phony prosperity didn't trickle down to everybody, right? It was great for Wall Street, but it wasn't working on Main Street, which is exactly why Donald Trump was elected president because he called out the phony recovery. He pointed out that this whole thing was a bubble. And I think had Donald Trump not won the election, the bubble would have popped once much sooner. I think the stock market was already topping out before the election. Had Hillary won, it probably would have tanked. We probably never would have had these rate hikes. The Fed probably never would have gotten to raise interest rates above that first hike. Because had Trump not been elected and we not had this last gasp in the stock market higher, this big burst of optimism, the recession probably would have already started, the bear market would have already started, and the Fed never would have gotten above a half a percent, whatever it was, for interest rates. And we already would be back at zero. They would already be doing QE4. But because of that election and what it caused to happen that enabled the Fed to get away with these rate hikes for as long as it did because of the tax cuts and the explosion of the deficit and the fact that the world was willing to buy up the dollar. The dollar kept rising because of all this happy talk and great talk about a booming economy, the greatest economy in the history of the world. And so this kind of caught this up. But now the air is coming out of that bubble and there is no way to stop it. There is no way to plug it back up. So when John Williams finished talking and the stock market realized, wait a minute, we're not getting any help from the Fed. The Fed's not going to do anything to stop the market from falling. There, there is no Powell put. Well, then you got to get out. And the market is selling off. You know, I'm watching on CNBC, and I've probably never seen this much bearishness coming out on CNBC. I mean, there are portfolio managers now that are acknowledging that there's a lot of risk. In fact, there was one guy, I don't remember what his name was, but he was on CNBC today and he, and he said, look, we're selling, we're, go, we're getting out. And he was almost like embarrassed to admit it. And he said, look, I'm sorry that I'm selling and I don't want to sell, but I have to because the market is this weak and I have to protect capital. And then the guy that was interviewing was almost like, how could you be selling now? I mean, how could you sell after this big decline? Like, this is such a stupid thing. How could you possibly be selling? Yet he was selling. And there are people, uh, uh, David Tepper was on CNBC yesterday saying cash is a good place to be, that the Fed isn't supporting the market. You're getting more and more people now coming on, admitting they're not they're not understanding the economy. Uh, they don't understand how big the recession is going to be, uh, but some of them do think the, that the Fed is overestimating the strength of the economy, uh, but most of them have no idea exactly what's going to happen. Of course, what nobody understands is how much worse the economy is going to get once the Fed comes to the rescue. Right, Because everybody will think, well, if we go back into recession, we could just do more quantitative easing. We'll just go back to zero and it's going to work great, just like it worked last time. It didn't work last time. It blew up a big bubble. People thought it worked. This time we're going to get the massive inflation, right? That people want to make fun of me because I said that, hey, we'd have all this QE. We'd have runaway inflation, hyperinflation. We're still going to get it. It's just going to be after QE4. You know, and we had this big head fake where we lulled everybody into a false sense of complacency that we can print all this money without any adverse consequences. Well, when the Fed goes back to the well again with 0% in QE4, we're not going to reflate a bubble in stocks and real estate. We're just going to cause consumer prices to go up because the dollar is going to go through the floor. Gold's going to go through the roof. You know, the reason that gold sold off a bit today and the dollar rallied 
was that people still haven't put these pieces together. They still don't realize that we're, the Fed's not going to d- deliver these hikes. People still think that we have a strong economy. They don't understand that you can't have a strong economy with real estate prices and stock prices falling. That it wasn't a strong economy. It was a bubble. And the bubble was a function of this asset wealth and cheap money. So people haven't put that together yet. So they don't realize that the weakness in the stock market means a recession and that a recession means the Fed's going to cut rates and do more QE. If people knew that, they would be buying gold like it's going out of style. They would be dumping the dollar. But what is going to happen is when they get blindsided, and this is why it's so important to be positioned in advance, because you're not going to have warning. When everybody finds out, when everybody is surprised at the same time about you know the collapse in the economy and that the Fed has to abruptly go to zero and do more QE, you're not going to have time to go buy gold. Gold's going to go up so fast it'll make your head spin, and the dollar is going to drop like a stone. And by the way, gold is still creeping higher. It was up about 17, 18 bucks yesterday. It got back up to the highs from before the Fed came out with their not dovish enough hike. Uh, gold stocks, though, did not even recover all of what they lost uh, on Wednesday. You know, they didn't even get back to you know to you know unch, let alone go back to their highs from before the Fed announcement. Uh, and gold got above 1260. It pulled back a few bucks today, but we still closed the week just above 1255. So the price of gold is still creeping higher, even with the dollar strengthening. But the dollar is not running away. The dollar is just not falling yet. The dollar's having days like yesterday, the dollar was down and that helped gold go up. But today we had a big rise in the dollar, but the dollar is not making new highs. People are not rushing into the dollar. They're just not running away from it yet because they still don't understand what's going to happen. But when they finally figure it out, it is going to be a huge, huge move in these markets. And you have to be positioned before the crowd discovers this. You can't try to move with the crowd because you'll get trampled. But that um, that rally today that got sold off the way it did and closing near the lows, again, this is typical bear market action. Rally in the morning, close near the lows, these big spikes in the market, get people excited, right? The bear market uh, falls a slope of hope. That is exactly what is happening. And again, by next week, when the Dow and the S&P are officially in bear market territory as well, then they're not going to be able to call it a correction. It's going to be a bear market. Of course, a lot of people are going to say, well, the bear market is over. We're nearing the end of the bear market. Why? This is just the beginning of the bear market. This bear market has a long way to run unless the Fed is going to come in and try to rescue it. But it doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. In fact, speaking about CNBC, I talked about uh, Jeff Gundelock's appearance on, on CNBC a few days ago where Jeff correctly said, we are in a bear market. And he laid it out. And in fact, if you haven't seen that whole interview, it's an hour interview. You can see it up on YouTube and you definitely should uh, give it a listen. Um, but during that time, I mean, he said a lot of things that people on CNBC normally don't hear. A lot of truthful things that are very unpleasant. And so then Jim Cramer came on his show, I guess, yesterday 
and basically called out Gundelock and said, look, this guy should stick to bonds. He doesn't know what he's talking about, right? I mean, he's trying to scare people, right? Like, you know, he he shouldn't have said what he said, right? He shouldn't have told the truth. He should have continued to, 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 you know, to regurgitate lies and platitudes and just talk about how great everything is, right? So the CNBC audience, you know, can keep hearing positive things, rainbows and sunshine, because maybe all their advertisers uh, and all the people who normally come on that are in the financial market, they all need their clients to keep the money in the market. They don't want anyone to sell. So CNBC has a big vested interest in hyping up the market, whether it's stocks or cryptocurrencies, you name it. They want to hype it up because they have a, a group of advertisers or whoever it is that profits and benefits from all this bullishness. So they're there to pump up everything. And so they don't like when uh, Gundelach comes on and rains on their parade. Right. So Kramer is calling him out and saying he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. And then. So later that night, Jeff Gundelock puts out a tweet and he basically says, well, I'm not going on CNBC anymore. Thanks to Jim Cramer. I'll see you on Fox Business. Now, of course, the minute CNBC realizes that they're going to lose Jeff Gundelock to Fox Business, oh my God, it's damage control. So later today on CNBC, they basically probably forced Cramer to come on live and on air you know, with his tail between his legs, basically grovel and apologize to Jeff Gundelock, not only saying he's sorry, but now he's saying he agrees with him. <laughs> so he went from saying he doesn't know what he's talking about, he should stick to bonds, to, you know, I actually agree with him, and he's a great guy, and I'm sorry that I criticized him. Uh, and so we'll see if um, if Jeff Gundelock, uh, you know, you know, accepts that apology and goes back on CNBC or sticks to Fox Business. We'll see. I mean, that's the only place that will have me on now is Fox Business. Not like that I'm on that often, but I'm on once in a while. And I guess, you know, the difference between a guy that manages $150 billion and me that barely manages a billion, uh, you know, and I'm not, again, I'm not a big guy uh, on Wall Street, although I do think a lot of people on Wall Street listen to my my podcast. I mean, not just Jeff Gundelock. I think a lot of people that work at his shop listen to my podcast. In fact, I think a lot of people on Wall Street listen to my podcast. They may not want to admit it. I think kind of the Peter Schiff podcast in a way is kind of like porn, you know, because I mean, pretty much every guy watches porn, but they don't want to necessarily admit it. They may be they're embarrassed about it. And I kind of think it's the same thing about my podcast. There's probably a lot of mainstream guys that work for Wall Street firms that actually listen to my podcast, but they don't want to admit it. They don't want to tell anybody back, oh, you can't listen to that kook. Uh, but I think that, that, that that's there. But if, if CNBC understood that, then, you know, maybe, you know, they would, they, would, they would have me on. But I think that what is a bigger issue is that maybe some of their other guests and the Main Street Wall Street firms that they rely on for the bulk of their, you know, entertainment and the bulk of their ad money I have a feeling that they don't like people like me coming on or me in particular coming on. So they don't really care that I have an audience or a following. Uh, they have a bigger audience or following that they feel that they need to worry about rather than people who like to see me. But Gundelock is a different story because he is a big fish in the investment pond. And if he went to Fox Business that would be a big loss for them. That, I mean, they're in big competition with, with each other for the big names, the marquee names in the investment world. And so they can't lose Gundelock, even though he comes on and, you know, is a toned down version of what I'm saying. Uh, but they, they can't lose him to Fox Business. 
Oh, and by the way, if you didn't see it, I put up a YouTube video on uh, on my channel, and I actually uh, juxtaposed the analogy that I used about running into uh, an old friend who was loaded up with debt. The, and I, I, I put me using it on the Joe Rogan podcast. I actually used it on my last Joe Rogan podcast in, I think it was July of this year. And I know I've used it on this podcast. The problem is there's so many of them, I really couldn't find it. But I found the one on the Joe Rogan podcast. And so I, I juxtaposed me using the analogy. And then I cut in uh, Jeff Gundelock's using the exact same analogy. And I put it together so you could see what I was talking about. So if you haven't looked at that video, uh, check it out. And again, I'm not upset that Gundelock used it. I'm thrilled that he used it. I don't think he was obligated to say, as Peter Schiff likes to say, you know, because I don't own the analogy. I'm using analogies to help explain things. And if Jeff wants to use the same analogy to explain something, go right ahead. I just said I would have loved it just as an extra if he would have shoved it in CNBC's face because I would like CNBC to know that even though they don't let me on and they don't want people to listen to me, that people like Jeff Gunnelock listen to me anyway. Another interesting thing, too, about today's sell-off was the volume. I mean, we had some heavy, heavy volume today. I think twice the average volume and closing on the lows. So there was a lot of selling. People aren't buying the dips here, right? They are selling the rips, which is exactly what happened today. So we got Monday coming. We got the potential for a mini Black Monday because we have a truncated trading day. We'll see what happens. But there should be a lot of nervous people uh, over the weekend. Now, we also got a lot of economic data that came out today, pretty much all of it bad. And again, you know, with all the selling and all the Fed talk, nobody is really paying attention to the economic data. But the Atlanta Fed did notch down its estimates uh, for Q4 GDP back down to 2.7%. I still think they're wildly optimistic. But let me go over some of the data that we did get today. We got the durable goods numbers for November, and they came out quite a bit below estimates. They were looking for a 1.4% increase, and we only got an increase of 0.8. But then if you X out transportations, it was minus 0.3. And in fact, almost all the transportations was military aircraft. And so if it weren't for the government spending money on aircrafts, the headline number, right, the new orders number would have actually been negative not positive. And core capital goods were supposed to rise by 0.3 and they fell by 0.6. Now, there were some upward revisions to the ex-transportation number and the core goods number from the prior month. But if you net them all out, the whole uh, report was weaker than what had been expected. The GDP number, they came out with a final revision for the third quarter GDP, and they notched it down from 3.5% to 3.4%. But the most important part of that GDP number was lurking beneath the surface, and it was the inventory build that I think was 69%, so almost 70% of that 3.4% number was the result of a buildup in inventories. Now, the question is, why are businesses building up their inventories like that? Because, you know, if you, if you X out the inventory build, the Q3 GDP number was just up 1%. That's it. 
So it was all about the inventory. So why are businesses rushing to build up inventories? Well, one reason is maybe they're optimistic. Maybe they think the economy is booming and maybe they think consumers are going to buy a lot of stuff. And so they're loading up on inventories. And that might be part of it. And I think they're wrong. I think the consumer is about to bust because his house is going to collapse. His stock portfolio is going to collapse. And all the debt that he has is going to be more expensive to service. And then people are going to start losing their jobs because other people aren't going to spend as much money when they've lost all their wealth and they're spending higher money on, on interest. So a lot of layoffs are coming. So maybe the business owners were too optimistic. You know, they were all great and they were a lot of Republicans who thought everything was great. And so maybe they bought extra inventory. But it's a lot more than that. See, Donald Trump has been talking about slapping on these 25% tariffs at the end of the year, right? And so it makes sense that if you are a importer, you would want to import more stuff before the end of the year, even stuff that you don't think you're going to need until later next year, because if you wait until after the first to import it, you're going to have to pay the 25% tariff. And so you want to get it in before the 25% tariff, because if you don't and your competitor does, then he can sell at a lower price than you because he doesn't have to price in the tariff because he doesn't have that as part of his cost basis. So I think a lot of businesses were under competitive pressure to load up on inventory now so they can remain competitive in the event that Trump slaps on these higher tariffs. So now one or two things are going to happen. Either the tariffs are coming or they're not, but either way, all of that extra uh, inventory build simply borrowed from uh, future GDP because obviously they're not going to have to spend, companies aren't going to spend to build inventories if they already have them. Now, the other problem is what if there isn't even all this demand? They bought so much stuff trying to front run the, uh, the tariffs and thinking that the economy was booming. Now it busts. And so now, I mean, now the inventory is going to be drawn down. This is going to weigh down GDP. I'm not sure how much in the fourth quarter of this year, because they could still be front running those tariffs, but it should certainly weigh heavily on GDP in Q1 and Q2 of next year, which could easily mean that we are in recession, official recession in the first half of 2019. Now, the question is, when will the Fed acknowledge that? Yeah, they might not know we're in recession until, you know, those quarters are in the rearview mirror. We'll see. Uh, but obviously, the layoffs are going to start. A lot of other things are going to happen in the first half of next year as this recession starts. Uh, but the Fed may be oblivious. They may think it's a fluke. I mean, who knows what they're going to say. But, of course, the stock market is going to continue to fall, uh, which is going to be adding more downward pressure to the economy as more wealth continues to evaporate. We also got the personal income and spending numbers. And uh, when they came out, uh, you know, I was actually watching CNBC when Rick Santelli uh, read the numbers. And he was really excited when he read the numbers because he said, oh, it's a beat on spending, right? Spending was up 0.4 and it was supposed to be up 0.3. But even more exciting was the revision to November when spending was up 0.6. And uh, and they revise it to up 0.8, right? So this is good news, right? People are going out and spending. Well, as I've been saying, as Jeff Gundelak just said on CNBC, when consumers go into debt to spend more money, that is not a good thing, right? And just because people spend money is not a sign of a healthy economy. Let's look at where they're getting the money. They're not earning it because income, which was supposed to rise at 03 
only rose by 0.2. And the increase from the prior month was not revised upward. Only the spending was revised upward, not the income. And that meant the savings rate plunged to the lowest in more than five years. Now, if savings are collapsing, that is a sign that the economy is weakening. Right? When economies are strong and people are employed and they're earning money, they tend to save. They get out of debt. They build up their savings. That's a sign of prosperity. That's a sign of a growing economy. Going into debt, right? going deeper into debt so that you can buy stuff is a sign of a weak economy. And of course, a lot of the things that people are buying are not necessarily luxury things. I mean, people are borrowing money to buy food. They're borrowing money uh, to pay their electric bills. They're borrowing money to pay for insurance. They're borrowing money to pay for a lot of things that they should be paying for with their incomes, but their incomes are inadequate to, uh, to pay for these things. We also got Kansas City Fed Manufacturing. That was supposed to come out at 15. It came out at three. I think that's uh, the lowest level in a couple of years. Uh, also, the Philly Fed came out yesterday, right? And same same thing, not as big a collapse, but the November number was 12.9. The consensus was for the Philly Fed business outlook to increase to 16.5. Instead, it dropped all the way down to 9.4. So you have all this more economic data coming out, confirming that the economy is much weaker uh, than everybody expects, yet the Fed is clinging to its rosy economic scenario, uh, looking in the rearview mirror, right? But if only they looked in the windshield, they would have a much better understanding of what's going on. But again, you know, this is par for the course. This The Fed has learned nothing from its prior mistakes. Its attitude today mirrors the attitude that it had leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. But I do think that some of the people on Wall Street seem to be getting a little more worried a little earlier. I mean, I think people waited a lot longer in 2008 before they got as worried as they are now. Because I remember, I mean, I was on these shows all the time going up to mid-2008, and I was bearish, and I was saying a recession was coming or a great recession, a collapse or crisis. I was predicting all this stuff, and everybody was bullish. I mean, they were bullish up until the summer of of 2008. You know, Kramer is, you know, when, when he was on his show, you know, criticizing Gundelok, he was patting himself on the back because of his, they know nothing speech. You know, the Fed has to cut as if, you know, he was warning about the financial crisis. Kramer was as bullish as you could be. By the time he panicked and said the Fed knew nothing, the, the, the financials were collapsing already. I mean, it was blood in the streets. I mean, so the Fed was only a couple of weeks behind Kramer. It's not like, you know, he was out there warning way in advance. You know, by the time he was losing his mind, it was pretty much right on the eve of the crisis. Um, but now, I mean, you look at, I've been talking about Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs now is down better than 40% from its highs, it was down another 5% today. I mean, you look at the chart on this stock and the financials in general, but there's a lot of air there. I mean, Goldman Sachs could drop to 100 in a heartbeat. It was at 275. If it goes down to 100, that's over a 60% decline. We haven't seen financials fall like that since the 2008 financial crisis. And of course, you've got these other 
stocks like uh, Deutsche Bank in Europe making new lows again today, down 2.36%, 7.87 now, uh, a seven handle on Deutsche Bank. I mean, this was a $140 stock before the financial crisis, but you know it came back up to about $80 in 2010, and here we are. You know, it's you know 90% below that, but. Financials don't collapse like this without a reason. I mean, there's something going on out there. And I think at least some of the traders earlier, right, are starting to worry about the markets earlier than they worried about it in 2008. Because maybe they learned something, a little something, from the last financial crisis. And I think maybe more uh, investors understand that QE was a big deal, particularly QE3 that went on forever. It was open-ended. I mean, you know, there was a reliable influx of government money uh, that was helping to push up the stock market. Because you take a, a chart of the Fed's balance sheet and put that against the stock market. And as soon as the Fed stopped increasing its balance sheet, that's when the market really started to go sideways. I mean, it creeped higher, but the big move up in the market coincided with the big move up in the Fed's balance sheet. Now, the most recent move up was the speculative sugar high resulting from the Trump euphoria and the tax cuts. But we are pricing that out of the market now, right? Especially if people start to realize that Trump may not be there for a second term. I mean, maybe he'll get impeached. Maybe he's going to resign. But if he goes up for re-election, he ain't going to win. And so whatever good things we got from Trump when it comes to tax cuts, the socialist Democrats are going to take all that away. And I'm not even sure if, if they've connected that many dots yet. But they know that there was a lot to the quantitative easing. But once we once we back out all the Trump gains, we then have to back out all the QE gains. Because if the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet, well, we're going to shrink back down the stock market. And again, what's more important now is you have to look at what's going on with the budget deficits. You know, right now, all the big news is about this government shutdown, right? And I don't know, the government might even shut down today. And what really bothers me about this shutdown is the reason for the shutdown. I mean, Donald Trump is going to shut down the government because he's not going to get $5 billion for the wall. Now, the Republican Congress, which won't be a Republican Congress much longer, but they approved the funding for the wall. Now, the Republican-controlled House, it's a lot iffier because they don't have as, as big a margin. Uh, they have to uh, Now they have to decide whether they're going to approve the wall spending or shut down the government. But, you know, at least when the Tea Party, right, the first government shutdown, I think, was 2010. And that shutdown was all about Obama and his runaway deficit spending. And we're going to, you know, we're going to do something about government spending and to, to rein in these deficits. And that was a worthwhile goal. That was a principal stance. I mean, I would have shut down the government for that reason. In fact, when I ran in 2010, that was my stump speech that I will, you know, filibuster any increase in the national debt. I will force government to cut spending. And so that's what the initial uh, shutdown was for. And then they had another shutdown, I think, opposing Obamacare. Again, a noble effort to try to put a stop to that. But for Trump to lead a government shutdown because Congress won't spend extra money, the government won't spend even more, he wants additional spending beyond what's been authorized. So, I mean, I think this is a political loser for the president. I mean, he's got so much stuff that's going to work against him. I guess in the scheme of things, this really isn't going to matter. 
But I would like to see, if we're going to shut down the government, if Trump is going to shut down the government, which he should do, do it for a real good cause. Do it to shrink government, not to grow government. And, you know, of course, I mentioned this on the podcast. The worst part about a government shutdown is it costs us more to shut it down than keep it open. That's the problem. Government is more expensive when it's not running. So, you know, we, it, it ends up even exacerbating the budget deficits. But the point is, on the quantitative tightening, you've got to look at the deficits that are being generated now by the government. Revenues are declining. Government revenues are going down. Expenditures are exploding out of control, not just because more people are getting more government spending from entitlements, but interest on the national debt. Every time the Fed hikes rates, it's more expensive to finance the $22 trillion debt that already exists. So government expending is exploding. And where is the government going to get all this money? They have to suck it out of the capital markets. This is massive crowding out. When Obama was running these huge deficits, the Fed was monetizing them all. We were doing $80 billion a month of quantitative easing. Now we're doing $50 billion of quantitative tightening, and the deficits are even bigger. So there is no way for the markets to absorb this. So it is massive crowding out in the credit markets that clobbers the housing market. It clobbers the stock market. It clobbers the economy. And I think maybe the traders are a little bit more cognizant of this than uh, the guys at the Fed. And so that's why they're a little bit more worried now because they see how quickly everything is imploding. And maybe, you know, they're a little bit more technically savvy. I mean, they look at these charts and they can see the bottom dropping out of the market. And so they know the Fed now is not there. In the past, you know, you have the Greenspan put. That was there. And then it was renewed with Bernanke and Yellen. If that put is expired, now again, I don't think it's expired. I just think the strike price is way down there. I think the market's going to fall a lot before you can exercise that put and the Fed is going to deliver the the, the rate cuts and the QE. But again, as I said earlier in this podcast, it ain't going to work again. It's not the third time is a charm. It's three strikes and we're out. We're going to get... The massive consumer price inflation. The dollar is going to implode. Gold is going to explode. Those are the things that are going to happen. In fact, the dollar's collapse and gold's rise are going to be much more spectacular now than had it happened initially. Because we were able to delay all this, because we had a, a dollar rally and because some of the problems in Europe and, uh, and, and Asia may have temporarily eclipsed the problems here and caused more money to come into our credit markets, right? So we can go deeper into debt and dig ourselves into a deeper hole because we were able to make the bubble so much bigger, right? It's going to be that much worse when it pops for the economy, but that means that much worse for the dollar, but that much better for gold. But as much as, uh, you know, the media wants to pretend that this government shutdown, this looming shutdown is some reason for the market decline, it's got nothing to do with it. The government shutdown is theatrics and the market knows that. In fact, if the government doesn't shut down, if they avoid a shutdown and the stock market rallies on that, that's probably just another great opportunity to sell because it'll be a sucker rally because that is not why the market is falling. And so if it's got a phony dead cat bounce based on some resolution of the shutdown, then you want to sell into that rally. Because again, the problem isn't that government is going to shut down. The problem is that government is going to stay open and not just the government, the Federal Reserve. 
I guess, though, I can't talk about bubbles again popping without talking about Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies because we did have a pretty big rally. In fact, I think overnight we had 4,162 is the high I'm looking at on Bitstamp. And so uh, we rose pretty much a thousand points off the lows from Bitcoin. So a big rally. As I'm talking now, the market is at 38.34. So we're pulling back almost 6% now on the day uh, below the highs that we set overnight. Again, this is another, as I said on the last podcast, this is another bear market rally, just like the bear market rallies that we have in the stock market right now. They are selling opportunities. They are not buying opportunities. Yes, some people will get suckered in to the move because they'll get greedy, because they'll be thinking, oh, Bitcoin's now at 4,000. It's going to go back to 20,000. It's not going back to 20,000. It's never going to see 20,000 again, right? But the idea that it might go up there is what encourages people to buy. But don't be greedy, be smart, right? Sell into these rallies. And it's not about fear, right? It's about making a rational decision. Because the, the people who own these currencies should be afraid. They should be afraid they're going to keep falling. They're not, right? Sometimes it's rational to be afraid. Sometimes it's not. In fact, most of the time it's not, right? A lot of the people sell at the bottom. People selling Bitcoin right now are not selling anywhere near the bottom. Right. Actually, people were afraid of missing out. Right. The FOMO, that kind of fear is what suckered people in at the top. Right. I know a lot of people who have, who have bailed on gold because they're afraid it was going to go lower or gotten rid of gold stocks, you know, because they were afraid they were going to go lower. That's a mistake. Right. There is a huge opportunity in, in those sectors. Right. Don't be fearful. Be opportunistic. You take advantage of other people's fear when their fear is irrational, because sometimes people are afraid of things they don't understand. And even, you know, if you're invested in my strategy and our, our portfolios are going down this quarter, I mean, not nearly as much as the U.S. stock market. I mean, maybe we're down two or three percent on the quarter. Now, we're down more than that on the year because, you know, we had a bigger decline in the first half of the year. But in the last three months, we're barely down. Right. I mean, we're down a little. The reason we're not up is because people haven't connected the dots yet. The dollar's not tanking. Gold's not taking off. I mean, it's up a little bit, but gold stocks aren't moving. Right. They will eventually. But there are people that have you know, thrown in the towel on this strategy because they, they're afraid that the markets are going to keep falling. I, I don't care because I know what the end game is. I know I'm buying quality assets at discounts. And I know that what I'm doing in the gold sector, the gold stocks, I know that they're only this cheap because people don't understand what's going to happen. And there are people who are selling out of fear of things, things that they don't understand and don't know. And that creates an opportunity, just like greed. When people are greedy and overpaying for assets, the smart thing to do is sell them those assets. And don't worry if they keep going up. Don't get greedy yourself and, 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 and oh, I got to buy back in. You sell things that are overpriced to people who are greedy who don't understand. And you buy things from people when they're underpriced, when people are fearful and they don't understand. And then you just wait. Time is on your side. You wait it out. And, you know, there's an old expression, good things come to those who wait. And it couldn't be more appropriate when it comes to investing. If you're patient and you wait and you're right, good things will come to you. If you follow the herd and you panic and you buy into euphorias and you sell into despair, uh, then you lose. And the people who are selling stocks right now are not panicking because we're nowhere near the lows, right? Uh, but they're making a rational decision to 
get out of a bear market before the bear market gets worse. The only unknown is when is the Fed going to come in and, and, and save everybody, right? Because clearly, you know, the Fed could come in. But I don't think just the Fed talking about, oh, we're not going to hike anymore. That's not enough. That's not enough drugs for this addict. It's not going to be taking hikes off the table. Rates are too high right now. This market cannot handle a two and a quarter percent Fed funds rate. This market was built for zero. That's where you have to go. But of course, you can't stay at zero forever because then the dollar collapses and inflation takes off. The only reason that QE worked or the only reason that people think it worked is because everybody thought it was temporary, right? That's why it worked because people thought it was temporary. I knew it wasn't temporary. I knew that they had checked us into a monetary roach motel. I knew there was no way out. And when the Fed has to go back down to zero again, when they have to blow their balance sheet up again, everybody is going to figure out what I was trying to explain from the very beginning, and they're going to learn their lessons the hard way.